right, welcome to day 355 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Ezra chapter 11 through chapter 8, verse 14, and then we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13. Okay, picking up in Ezra, um, and we've just been introduced to the character of Ezra, um, we have a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, and um, this is uh, now starting in verse 12, going through verse 26, all of which we'll cover today, is uh, the second and final Aramaic portion of Ezra and the final Aramaic portion of the Old Testament that we will see. Um, so, uh, yeah, Ezra is returning to the land, and we've already seen that he's very devoted to the to the the Torah, the the law of God, and um, not just to knowing it, but to teaching it and to doing it. And so, this is the man whom Artaxerxes is kind of giving to uh, apparently to spearhead this move back to Judah. And keep in mind, by this time, there are plenty of exiles, uh, returned exiles already living in Judah. So it's not like he's the first, but this is like, he's the head of like another wave. And in this letter, what we find is just enthusiastic support for what Ezra is going to do. And again, you have to just uh, hop into the mindset of a polytheistic king who is ruling over a, an extremely large territory of peoples with an extremely diverse um, range of views and with a policy that uh, is one of religious tolerance that allows um, the different nations to practice uh, their religion as they see fit and kind of grants legitimacy to all of them. Like that's not a fight that he wants to have. And having been... Um, and we've seen the Persian kings now are uh, like, you know, falling in line with Cyrus's decree um, in that kind of ironic turn when Tatanai and all the others who were with him uh, attempted, uh, apparently attempted to get them in trouble for building the temple. What they did was they actually kind of shot it up with steroids and the temple got finished and everything. So, but this is, this is considerably later than that. It's a, it's a little bit later than that. And um, so here's the letter. Um, he he uh, again, Ezra is called a man learned in matters of the commandments of Yahweh. And uh, so begins Artaxerxes, king of kings, which is, of course, strikes us as, hey, Jesus is the king of kings. And yeah, that's one of the points of Jesus being called that, that he's the true king of kings. But this is a title that uh, rulers have not shied away from using of themselves. Uh, in fact, um, Yahweh even calls Nebuchadnezzar that in Ezekiel 26, 7, and Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar that in Daniel 23, uh, sorry, 2, 30, verse 37. And uh, uh, because that's the title that he assumes for himself, and that is his status on the world stage. Um, and so Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. Okay, so this, again, this is... Artaxerxes' support for him and what he's doing. I make a decree. So now this is a decree, the kind of decree that cannot be revoked. Any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. You're sent by the king and his seven counselors, which 
Um, apparently, um, we have seen before, I uh, think there were seven eunuchs standing next to the king, uh, King Xerxes in Esther 110. Um, uh, so, you know, along with my seven counselors, we send you to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God to see how they're doing, but also to carry um, lots of silver and lots of gold that have been freely offered by us and by me and my counselors uh, to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, um, along with all the silver and the gold that you shall find in the province of Babylonia, so, in other words, he's to acquire even more there, and he's to acquire free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And so, uh, with that money, um, you're to one of the things you're to do um, is to buy the animals who will be necessary to maintain the temple worship there uh, the bulls, the rams, the lambs, grain, stuff for drink offerings, and offer them at the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. And also, Ezra is given permission to use some of the funds for discretionary funding. Verse 18, whatever seems good to you and your brothers, um, you can do according to the will of your God. And um, and whatever else is required for the house of your God, which falls to you uh, to provide, you may provide it out of the king's tre- treasury. Okay. Then the next uh, section of the letter, the next paragraph, uh, cha- uh, verses 21 through 24, are, um, is, are instructions given to the province's treasuries, um, and these are going to be instructions to provide material support, so you have all the stuff, and to do it with diligence, uh, 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much, so that's like the, the cap on what they're to give. And then also, as is you know, kind of common practice in the ancient world, the priests and all the others who work to support the temple are exempt from taxes. Um, and then, as for you, Ezra, and this is verse 25 through 27, um, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hands, appoint magistrates to, to judge all the peoples, so individuals to assist him, uh, whoever it is who knows the laws of your God. Um, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. So that's the mandate that Ezra has. And not only is he given this mandate, but he's also given the authority to enforce the laws. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, notice in one breath, right, that there's royal force now behind the Torah, at least in, in the province of Judah. A let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. And, uh, and that ends the Aramaic section of the book of Ezra. Uh, then in verse 27, the narrative shifts to a first-person account of Ezra, and this is typically called the Ezra Memoir, and this is going to continue up through the end of chapter 9, this first-person perspective of Ezra. So it says, "'Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king.'" Notice the the sovereignty of God kind of overshadowing all of this and uh, causing the kings of Persia to make these decisions in, as, as an act of favor and grace towards the Jewish people. Um, uh, so he's put that into the heart of the king to beautify the house of Yahweh that is in Jerusalem, 
who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officials. And I took courage, for the hand of Yahweh my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, we are going to be have a genealogy of who those men were, of course, very brief, just pretty much naming the heads of the households. Um, so again, and again, we've already been told of this, this grand uh, trip of, and I noted yesterday, probably about 900 miles of all those who were called to go, uh, who, who went up with Ezra back to Jerusalem. Um, and this is during the reign of Artaxerxes, that return, uh, which um, we've seen was in the seventh year of his reign, which would have been about 458. Um, I should note probably that there is a view of interpreting this, by the way, that actually um, puts these events as happening a little bit later. So there is an Artaxerxes II who reigns from 404 to 358. And so if this is his reign, then um, this would have taken place in about 417. But that does uh, kind of um, alter the kind of traditional way of understanding the relationship between Ezra and Nehemiah, which are one book. It, it kind of it used to compose like one scroll. It's Ezra Nehemiah. Um, we just have them separate in our Bibles. But if we do put Ezra's return in the late in the during the reign of Artaxerxes the second, then that actually puts Ezra after Nehemiah. And there's some pieces like details that um, of the text that you know can be used to support that notion. And I don't want to weigh in super heavily. I'm just kind of going with the what I understand to be the traditional understanding that Ezra. Uh, preceded Nehemiah, but like one might note note that when Ezra does eventually return, the city apparently does have walls. So, um, you know, and Nehemiah is well known. That's kind of like the thing that he's well known for. So just to put that on your on your map, that is um, a possible position for this. But uh, so, yeah, he gives the genealogy and notice the priests go first, emphasizing the importance of of the priestly stuff. In fact, um, the the priests take such a prominent role in the leadership of of uh, Judah now that those who are in the governor positions or would allegedly have been like we saw with Sheshbazar and then we saw with Zerubbabel Zerubbabel's the one who receives considerably more biblical attention um, but here the 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 son of David okay in in verse two um, Chatush is actually kind of like mentioned afterwards and receives almost oh, like very, very little attention. So he he is not given this prominent position that uh, we would expect um, or as things were being told earlier on, uh, again, because the priestly aspect, the uh, the need to teach the Torah and to and to resume the temple is so emphasized in this section. Another interesting thing about Chatush is according to First Chronicles 3, 21 through 22, he's actually four generations after Zerubbabel. And, uh, you know, if we're going with the um, the earlier King Artaxerxes I, uh, that would put him about 81 years after the decree of Cyrus to go up, uh, during which Zerubbabel is alive. And so, it does. Uh, there's a nice kind of uh, way in which these texts do um, kind of support one another. The idea that this guy is mentioned here as going up in this generation um, at, at this time, and that he's pretty much the right amount of generations since um, since Zerubbabel 
and uh, and 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 his return much earlier under the under the reign of King Cyrus. Um, of course, this this is recounting generations according to when people probably would have had kids. That would be like in their lower twenties or so, uh, give or take a few years. Uh, and I guess the only other thing that I'll mention here is notice that the priestly connection to Phinehas is emphasized there in verse two, which um, calls our attention back to Numbers twenty-five seven through eight, and that is where the people of Israel are. Um, engaging in idolatrous worship of Baal of Peor and um and Phinehas is kind of the 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 chief example of zeal against that remember like he actually kills a man who had taken a Moabite woman into his tent an Israelite man and that actually is going to be that problem where Israelites are marrying uh, in, intermarrying with people of the land who are not devoted to Yahweh and the danger of idolatry that results from that is actually going to be something that Ezra will have to address. So it's uh, probably not without reason that the text could have linked it to a lot of other, um, uh, the text could be linking the the priests to the uh, a lot of other figures, but here it chooses to link them to Phinehas. All right, let's go down to Revelation chapter 13. So, uh, remember where we left off yesterday with the story about the woman and the the dragon uh, in the wilderness and the and it ended off um, if you back up to verse 17 of chapter 12, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, okay? So that's where, this uh this this vision of the of the dragon leaves off and then attention goes to the sea and i saw a beast chapter 13 tells us rising out of the sea uh so this is the great beast of revelation and this beast has um 10 horns and 7 heads and 10 diadems on its horns on its 10 horns and blasphemous names on its head so essentially what this is going to describe now, so the, uh, the, the dragon of chapter 12, of course, is identified as Satan. So that he's like the spiritual power of evil that is uh, at work in, in our age, in this time, in, in, in our world. The beast, however, um, I mean kind of both beasts that we're about to see today— uh, show how Satan's Satan works through agents who carry out his war on God's people, and this, um, you know, kind of dovetails pretty well with this concept of uh, of antichrists that we have seen in the Bible. Although the word antichrist does not occur in Revelation, uh, you see it in First John two eighteen, two twenty two, four three, and Second John seven. Um, you know that it seems to be very similar to that, uh, but even closer than the term used as the ter- the term is used in First John, uh, it's what what is described here is actually very similar to the man of lawlessness whom Paul spoke of in Second Thessalonians two. And again, this is a human agent who has uh, who is like the earthly manifestation of the spiritual power which is embodied in Satan, this evil spiritual power. 
Now, as for the description of this first beast, he bears a striking resemblance to the dragon, and we can see why that would be the case, right? Because he is the connection is purposely being made there. So he's got seven heads, he's got ten horns, and not ten, but seven diadems. So it's, you know, just a few a few fewer crowns than Satan himself. Um, also, he's got blasphemous names on his head. Um, on, on its heads, multiple heads, right? Seven heads. And um, uh, this is a little bit reminiscent of the church, what, one thing that's said to the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 12, where it says that the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Um, also, remember the white stone with a new name given to Pergamum, chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. And of course, when Jesus returns in, in uh, chapter 19, he's got a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the idea of bearing names as um, as embodying as embodying characteristics is definitely a thing in Revelation, and here we see it with the beast. Um, now, this beast... Uh, is apparently the same beast who will, in chapter 17, carry the great prostitute. Um, So um, in chapter 17, John says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman, that is the great prostitute, and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. How many horns does this beast have? How many heads? Okay, it's the same beast. Um, And there we're told in verse 9, 17 verse 9, what all this stuff represents. And uh, so the seven heads, chapter 17, verse 9, are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, which, um, you know, I think it's it's fairly obvious that those are the seven mountains of Rome. Uh, we'll look at that when we get there. Um, and then in verse 10, and the heads are, so they are the seven mountains, but they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. So the heads are both the mountains and the kings. This is um, consonant with Revelation's um, tendency, uh, at least in, on some occasions, to give multiple meanings um, or, or, or merge different aspects of symbolism. So remember, uh, John is looking for a lion and he sees a lamb. Um, remember, the, the at least the, the interpretation that I slightly favored, um, the 144,000 from every tribe are the great multitude. And we will see that in several places. So you have this merging of images and what they represent. Um, note also here that the beast is connected to worldly government, okay? And that's very important. The seven kings, the seven mountains, right? For John and his readers, this would have been Rome, of course. And so what this, what the beast apparently is, as I said, is this manifestation of Satan's power through the kingdoms and dominions of the world. And for that reason, uh, there is, I, I think, a idealistic bent towards this. In other words, that for John and his readers, this is Rome, but that's not to say that that exhausts the meaning and the reference of the beast, that there will be other beasts after him and uh, after Rome. 
and that the beast manifests itself in different ways, in different places, and in different ages. Um, and um, now, if we are leaning into this Rome understanding, some have suggested that it could specifically refer to a succession of emperors. So, and the way this is typically divvied up is um, uh, beginning with Augustus, Caesar Augustus, because uh, Julius, and with the this understanding, noting that Julius Caesar was not technically an emperor, he's more of a dictator after gaining power over the Roman Senate. Uh, but then you've got Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Okay, so those are the first five. And then the sixth, the one who is, would be Titus, who reigned from 79 to 81. And of course, if you think that that is what is meant by, quote, the one who is, then that would give you a pretty tight range for the date of the writing of the book of Revelation. And then the seventh, the one who, who comes after him, would be Domitian. So this is the other one not yet, uh, who has not yet come. And... Um, of course, Domitian, under the reign of Domitian, there is a significant uh, persecution of the church. Uh, that view is not without faults, um, and probably I think the biggest one is that this requires us to not count uh, what is called the year of the four emperors, that is following Nero's demise, and it also doesn't count uh, Vespasian's reign, who, who reigns for 10 years, 69 through 79, right before Titus, uh, but in that year of the four emperors, it's, you know, kind of like Game of Thrones type stuff. There's uh, Galba uh, is is an emperor who is killed by Otho in a coup, and then Otho takes over, and he loses in a battle to Vitellius. So Vitellius takes over, and then Vitellius is killed by Vespasian's soldiers, and Vespasian kind of ends up on top uh, the year of the four emperors, which you know, it throws a, a little bit of a monkey wrench, I think, into identifying this as the the, the seven kings. Uh, rather, you know, I think uh, as with the number seven, right, we are dealing with a seven in Revelation. This may simply be symbolic. And if you think about it, right, what is this, what would the symbolism be? Well, that there have been many in the past. So the majority of the seven, the five have already passed. Uh, it's still going on in the present, and then there is more to come in the future, right? And I think even on that like literal trying to count seven emperors view, uh, if we if we are saying that this refers to specific Roman emperors, you still need to kind of say that anyway, since there are lots of emperors after Domitian. So yeah, I, I kind of favor that symbolic view in terms of the meaning of the heads insofar as the heads denote kings. But let's go back to chapter 13. So you've got this uh you've got this beast and it is described as being like a leopard and its feet are like a bear's and its mouth is like a lion's mouth. And where have we heard something like that before? Well, that would be Daniel's chapter 7 where you have a beast like a lion that represents Babylon, the a beast like a bear which I suggested uh represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And you have a beast like a leopard, which I argued represents um, Alexander the Great. And so uh, the idea here by having this beast resemble those beasts is that, again, five have been, right? Like that we, we have seen this before and it's happening now 
and this will continue to happen until Jesus returns. So it resembles things that have happened in the past, but it's got a unique iteration here in the present. But now, if you've got your finger on Daniel 7, you might be recalling that there is a fourth beast. And remember, that fourth beast that's unlike the other beasts and you know doesn't correspond to an actual animal, that beast has, guess how many horns? Ten. So that's an element of that beast that is now thrown in here as well. That's the beast that was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, who devoured broken pieces and stamped what was left. And then also among those horns, remember the little horn with eyes like a man and a mouth speaking great things. And skip down here in Revelation 13 to verse 5. What does it say? That um, that the beast was given a mouth um, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. So yeah, this does embody all four of those beasts from Daniel chapter 7. And, uh, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So he receives like basically all that the dragon has in order to do his evil work. Um, and the, the whole earth kind of follows this beast. They think that this beast is the goat, no pun intended, right? It's the greatest of all time. The best thing since sliced cheese. And why? Because it seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And so the earth is just, the whole earth is just following it, uh, worshiping the dragon for having given authority to the beast. Ah, oh, it's so awesome. And, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And just in case it's like, well, you know, what, what kind of people are doing this? Well, lots of people do this. And so again, Insofar as the beast has iterations uh, going throughout history, think about how people think of their own governments. Uh, dare I say, think of how we think of the American government, um, right? That like it's this awesome thing, and we and you know we 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 love our nation, and we will die for it, and um, you know our founding fathers were so wise, and and that's not to say that there's no like truth or value like in being a good citizen or. Or, or in thinking that our founding fathers were wise. But for those who don't follow the Lamb, right, this becomes their God. And you overlook all the evil things, all the terrible things that your nation also does. And yes, even America has a lot of that. And I also don't see any reason to restrict this uh, to the political, right? Like there's other things. You could think of, you know, com companies, corporations, institutions, uh, some have pointed to religious institutions as manifestations of the beast as well, not to name names here. But uh, yeah, it's it, it manifests itself as like the earthly power that Satan is exercising in order to turn people away from the lamb. Um, also, I want to say a word about that mortal wound. So notice, it seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, okay? Um, this probably, one can understand this in a variety of different ways. I think what this is, is it's saying that the beast has been defeated. It does have a mortal wound, a wound that will kill it. And that is the wound that is inflicted on Satan and all who are his at the cross and at the resurrection, right? Jesus wounded it. But here we are 2,000 years later, and this beast is still kicking and thriving, right? So it's it's it had it seemed to have a mortal wound, but it's but its wound was healed, 
right? So even the kingdom of God doesn't prevail against it, its followers might think. Okay, um, the beast is then given um, a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, um, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay, so a couple things I want to note here. Number one, notice it is allowed to. So it the, now the things that it is given, okay, um, like the mouth and stuff, I think we can say that it's given that by Satan. Uh, I think that would be in terms of like the flow of thought of revelation, what is going on there. Although one might say that God might give it to them as well in the sense that he um, gives to even evil agents the ability to do what they do, right? Like that, like think to Job chapter two, that Satan does nothing without God's God's permission, which of course falls into the, uh, or I, we could say under the umbrella of God's sovereign plan. Uh, but um, notice also that lots of the things that it's said to do, like four times actually here, you've got it in verse five, you've got it in verse seven, and then you've got it in verse 14 and verse 15, the phrase edathe auto, that is, uh, it's, it is allowed to, it is, it is allowed to exercise authority. It's allowed to make war on the saints. Um, and then in verse 14, uh, by the signs, it is allowed to work. And then in verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Uh, that's referring to the second beast, of course. So these two beasts here are only allowed to do what they're doing. Um, in other words, God's got them on a leash in, in, in some very real sense. Notice also how long he's able to exercise his authority, his authority in this world, right? That the beast is the head honcho here. Uh, for 42 months. They're 42, right? 42, if you're counting a month, that's roughly 30 days. How many days is that? 1,260 days, the same time that the dragon was able to torment us. Um, and so, again, another kind of like uh, syncing up with, with the efforts of the dragon. Um, and uh, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Notice the merging between those who dwell and the dwelling itself, um, uh, also referred to as a, as a temple at the beginning of chapter 11, um, and also at the end of the final consummation. Also notice again this phrase, those who dwell in heaven. Uh, we saw this also in chapter 12, verse 2, and that is in contrast to the people who follow the beast who are, who are identified as those who dwell on earth in 310, 6.10, 8.13, uh, and 11.10, and then here in this chapter in verses 8 and 14, uh, those who dwell on, on the earth. Um, it's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, right? That there will be, it's, it's not like the saints are always going to escape and always going to be delivered. Um, and authority is given it over the every, and we've heard this language before, tribe and people, language and nation, right? That's whom God is saving people out of, saving people out of the dominion of the beast and all who dwell on the earth. Again, they think it's awesome, worship it. Everyone whose name was has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. I've I've mentioned before in earlier episodes this concept of a book that God has. 
and um, and then you've you've even got this like kind of like twisted limerick that is uh, that is given here. Uh, if anyone has an ear to hear, uh, l- uh, let him hear. Um, if anyone is taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And uh, that is the reality of those living under the dominion of the beast. And so John caps uh, the introduction to this first beast off. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Right, That's what we are called to do in the face of the beast's dominion, to endure and to maintain our faith. Uh, then John looks and he sees a beast coming out of the earth. So we had come one, in, coming, one coming out of the, the sea and now we have one coming out of the earth. And remember the woe in chapter 12, verse 2. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. So both those things that are the dominion of the dragon, um, he's representing his authority here with the, uh, the, the, the two beasts. Perhaps one might even think that conceptually there's a similarity between the beasts and Satan uh, and God and humanity as the image of God, right? We are God's earth, the image of God um, means that we are God's earthly representatives, right? That, That his dominion is here. And here the beasts are Satan's earthly representatives. So what does this beast do? Well, his job is primarily deceiving people into following the first beast. So like in verse 12 here, it says, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So we've already seen that all of the, the, that the people love the beast, the people who dwell on the earth love the beast. They think it's the most awesome thing ever. And um, here, this is this is the agent that convinces them of that, um, kind of like the the beast's prop, the first beast's propaganda minister. It has two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. Okay, um, so it is a mockery of Christ in the very in a very real sense. Right, that um, there is an aspect of it that might resemble Jesus's rule. But what it says sounds a lot more like what Satan says. And uh, and it exercises all the authority of the first beast, um, again, to make the inhabitants of the earth worship it, and performs great signs. It does. It's very convincing. And again, just like the, the horns like a lamb that it has, the signs also resemble godly stuff. It resembles what Elijah did, right? It performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven. Um, So this is basically the MO of this second beast. Elsewhere in Revelation, uh, it is called the false prophet. Again, very in line with its its view as the, uh, its presentation as the propaganda minister of the first beast. And we see this title of false prophet given to him in uh, 1613, frogs come out of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Okay. And then in 1920, uh, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which it deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire uh, that burns with sulfur. So these uh, th- these two passages transparently calling this beast not the second beast, but the false prophet. 
Uh, there's also a, an interesting thing that's said in verse 14 about that wound, that mortal wound that the uh, first beast has, right? Because when it's talking about making those who dwell on the earth worship this beast, it refers to it as the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So that is the mortal wound. And here, we th- there might be a connection here between the sword that comes from Jesus's mouth in chapter 1, verse 16, right? When we first see Jesus on the scene, that's what's coming out of his mouth. Um, and then that's, of course, referenced in the letter to Pergamum in chapter 2, verses 12 and 16. So that, you know, the the sword that comes out of Jesus's mouth may be the sword that wounded that first beast. It's an intriguing connection. Now, we also mentioned the mark of the beast. So what is, what is this all about? Of course, a well-known concept from Revelation. Uh, also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for its number, uh, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666, all right? Not confusing at all, right? Well, first of all, I want to note that the um, that the sign of the beast, right, is not the same thing as the number of the beast. The beast is simply identified as a number six six six, right? Instead, you've got this uh, this mark that is put on the right hand or the forehead, the, this mark of the beast, and um, and there is a you know significant economic effect that it has. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Uh, but what is this this mark of the beast? Well, I think it's quite clear. It is the COVID nineteen vaccine. Just kidding. Okay, so um, the uh, the I, I think what we want to say here is that it's actually not hard within the context of Revelation to figure out what this is. Um, what was said of the hundred and forty four thousand? What did they have? Well, they were sealed on their foreheads. And that's one way that Revelation describes that we are owned or set apart for God, um, marked in a way that, you know, um, sounds a lot like Ezekiel 9 sounded. And I think that that, you know, you don't really have to go much further than that. This is the corresponding mark that those who follow the beast have. And so I don't think we even need to say, just like we wouldn't say that the mark on our foreheads is... um, is uh you know like a a tattoo or something like that or a barcode like Jesus puts out on us so th- there's no reason to say that about the mark of the beast here and saying a, a whole lot more of that probably just gets you into trouble because you're you start to speculate uh in directions that the scripture does not speculate but again it corresponds to that mark that is on our foreheads according to 7 verse 3 and we will see it again very shortly okay very very shortly in the first verse of of chapter 14, right, which reinforces the idea that these are to be led in light of each other, because then we're going to read, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So I think that's just what that is. Now, uh, we could also note that it is economic in effect, and so I, I think that this is Revelation's way of saying that this um, that there is great economic incentive to follow the beast. That 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 there's um, that following Jesus can has and will continue 
to have an effect on the on one's wallet, on one's bank account. And this looks a lot differently in different places. It was certainly true in the uh, for for Christians in the in the early Roman Empire, where um, you know they were excluded from even means of providing for themselves. We've talked about that before. Um, so I think that 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 that's what that is. Now, what about this number of the beast? Well, um, some have suggested you know six six six. That this may be an instance of gematria, and I think that's a very live possibility. Although it's kind of impossible for us to figure out exactly whom this would refer to. Now, what is gematria? Remember, I've spoken of gematria a few times during this podcast. I think you probably listen to episode one because I argue that it happens there. And I don't know if you remember that, but uh, Matthew em- keeps emphasizing the number fourteen and David's. Gematria number, that is, if you add up the numbers that correspond to the letters of his name, is 14. So that's one of the ways Matthew says, David, 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 when he's introducing Jesus Christ. Um, so Gematria is the use of a, of a number to represent an individual, you know, that corresponds to letters used in their names. And, um, and different suggestions as to what this might, who might be re- represented in this way, um, have been offered. So the initials of the Roman emperors from Augustus to Vespasian um, do equal 666, uh, but those who have calculated this omit Otho and Vitellius for various reasons. Again, you're kind of trying to get it to fit, right? Um, it's also the, abbrev- the, the gematria of the abbreviated Greek form of Domitian's full name, okay? Uh, so that's a possibility, Nero Caesar transliterated into Hebrew or Greek um, also yields 666. So is this Emperor Nero perhaps? Also, Nero Caesar transliterated into Hebrew from Latin. And by the way, by transliterated, I mean you're 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 rep- it's the same language, right? Um, so it would still be Latin, but you're spelling it with Hebrew characters. Um, but if you do that, then the Hebrew characters form 616, which if you're looking at your English Standard translation, uh, in English Standard Version, you will see a footnote that indicates that a number of early manuscripts actually read 616 here instead of 666. So those are some su- some suggestions, you know, especially um, popular, particularly among preterist interpreters, is that this is, in fact, narrow. And... The, it would make a lot of sense for it to use Gematria here because, um, you know, this is there's there's a very real sense, especially like where things have gone of late in these chapters, right? That this is super critical of the Roman Empire, and so Revelation would have been a very naughty book to have, and uh, it might just be regarded as beyond the pale for the for John to have just like named a particular Caesar or something as being this second beast, which as I as I noted earlier, would mean like the iteration of this second beast in his uh time time period. So the idea would be like the whole empire, the Roman Empire is the first beast, and then the the one, the emperor who represents it is its false prophet. Okay, you see how nicely that that would work. And so the idea would be that like among the Christian communities whom John helped shepherd, like they had kind of a code word to refer to the emperor and they would say, oh, 666 did this. And, you know, so that would be the proposal it would be something like that. So that, you know, to avoid 
openly exposing themselves to the charge of uh, of, of speaking blasphemy against the the emperor or, or criticizing him. Um, it is, of course, interesting to note like the nuance that the view of revelation towards its empire put uh, puts on like some of the things that Paul says about submitting to and praying for earthly authorities. I don't think that they're in conflict, but they do present an interesting tension. Um, but of course it is also possible that we're missing the mark here by trying to read this as gematria. Um, a, a simpler ex- explanation, which I also kind of like of six, six is that the most significant aspect is that it falls short by one digit of 777, which of course would be perfection. So the idea being that the false prophet portrays himself as perfect, portrays himself as per, as like the, the spokesperson for the one who is the greatest of all time, the goat, uh, but falls on its face and in fact is not. It is not 777. All it ever will be and all it ever can be is 666 all right so i i I leave you with that to think of and meditate and ponder over for uh, the next 24 hours but for now that's it and uh, as always i thank you for being with me and as always um until we meet again keep reading scripture take care and bye-bye